Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Pat TDS of the Trickle Down Socialist Podcast. Pat is an educator and family man living in New England. He's also active in his local union, and on the show we discuss politics, organized labor, class warfare, and the scandalous U.S. healthcare system. Hope you enjoy Solidarity Forever. trying to follow up every month, so welcome back. This is the third time I think you've been on the show. Welcome. Thanks, man. Who's keeping track at this point, right? Yeah. We just kind of set up a regular thing, and we yeah. we like to run our ideas by each other. Um, just going to call think- this episode Pat November, and then the next time I see you in, uh, in December, you know what I'm going to call it. Pat <laughs> December. You know? I've got, you know what? That, that seems like it could work. Yeah. You know, but we were talking about the healthcare system um, State and- of the healthcare system. You get paid and uh, in, in reimbursed for procedures. Sometimes uh, the best outcomes are not factored in. Sometimes maybe the best outcomes might be uh, I am in healthcare. I don't disclose exactly what I do, but I am in healthcare. I'm an insider, I would say. I'm a clinician. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the best outcomes might be just sitting down and having a conversation with a patient about weight loss or getting better sleep or, you know, working for stress reduction at work and, you know, uh, just kind of holistically looking, uh, you know, at the patient and seeing, you know, what's their life, uh, you know, what's the problems in their lives, you know, maybe not just a, co- a cocktail of medications or, you know, as you had mentioned, um, you know, there's a, I guess, a big emphasis on C-sections with uh, birth, as we talked about uh, on the pre-call, instead of just having like a natural birth. So, and uh, in, in our healthcare system, you know, you're incentivized for procedures, there's a big emphasis on medications, surgeries, all sorts of more expensive, uh, expensive um, you know, kind of invasive interventions. But again, sometimes the best outcomes might be just having a conversation with a patient, talking about lifestyle factors, nutrition, diet, exercise, um, you know, hobbies. I think having a good hobby is, is also very important. How are you spending your days? A lot of some of my patients, you know, are retired or older. Um, you know, they don't have a job anymore. Not that I want to be a wage slave working every single day of my life, but I am. But, you know, when you're retired and, you know, you kind of lost that, um, you kind of lost that eight hours in your day where, where you usually you've been um, dedicated to, to work, 
you're, you're, people are lost. You know, they're looking for something to do. They're looking to kind of keep their mind and body occupied. So I think a lot of the time um, for geriatrics is, you know, they just sit in front of that TV and they just watch the TV. They don't have any hobbies. Uh, maybe they're an empty nester. Their kids are gone. So, uh, again, a lot of my patients, that's kind of where I try to find, you know, what their, what their lifestyle is. And what they're lacking. And I think, unfortunately, you know, those types of conversations, 15 minutes, 20 minutes of a conversation trying to get to know someone, you don't get good intervention, or I'm sorry, you don't get good reimbursement for that. You get a much better uh, reimbursement, uh, much better kickbacks for prescribing a drug or, you know, maybe, um, you know, an x-ray, an MRI, diagnostic test. Uh, you know, much better kickbacks for those things. And certainly a surgical intervention is tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, but a good conversation, you get maybe nothing for, or maybe you know a couple bucks. Who knows? Depending on what insurance company you're going through. But uh, let's let's stay in the healthcare system. You are uh, you have some views on that as well. What do you think about the state of the U.S. healthcare system? Yeah, so it's a uh, definitely a topic that would get me going at any point from any source. But you know, we were talking in the pre-call about childbirth. Um, and I think it's important to recognize, as we have in the past, and as you have with other guests of yours, um, it's, a, it's a profit-driven system, right? So there's no denying the fact that, you know, not only, you know, the hospitals and doctors and the drug companies, but also the insurance companies that are, you know, basically artificial middlemen deciding on the care that you receive, um, you know, all of that is driven by an incentive for profit. And and when a system is set up like that, then you have to really ask yourself whenever you interact with it, is this um, something that's being prescribed to me because of, uh, is, is the profit motive at all at play in the decision to prescribe X treatment or Y uh, intervention or, you know, even a, a pharmaceutical intervention, like you said, you know, it are our country is overprescribed uh, as compared to other countries and our outcomes are far lower. You know, you had a fantastic episode with um, dude whose name escapes me right now, but about the Cuban medical system, you know, under, under blockade, right. With outcomes far better than ours in terms of maternal mortality rate, um, you know, and, and, you know, on down the line, Cuba spends, I think, I think, 5% per capita on health expenditures than the uh, U.S. does with about the same outcomes. That's a, that's, right. that's a scandal. That's a scandal. And they're under blockade and a blockade from a country, the U.S., that has, you know, access to and serves as either creator, um, patent holder, uh, manufacturer, or, you know, kind of they use other countries as contract manufacturers for their patents of so many medical devices and so many necessities in a hospital setting in these days. And to, to have the outcomes they do under that blockade, um, you know, to have a system of like the Great exporting, outcomes exporting really doctors, outcomes. they export pennies doctors. on the doctor for pennies on the dollar, pennies on the doctor. Yeah. That's the number one export. I believe that's what Cabral yeah, but I think. I think it also doctors. gets back to, you know, in terms of not just the profit motive, but another really important point you were making, um, and I think it's really great that as, you know, a clinician, you you, you emphasize this, is the, the idea of stress reduction, right? And, and I think we're only starting to understand the effects that stress have on the body. But one of those effects is an inflammation, right? And that inflammation causes so many of our maladies, so many of our ills, so many of our aches and pains. Um, and I was just, you know, starting to mention to you, and this is like, I wasn't even setting out to lose weight, 
But in the spring, because I had changed districts to a, uh, a district that I can teach in much closer to home and nine miles away from my house, um, I've been riding my bike again, something I used to do to get to work. And it's a de-stressor. It really like clears my head. But as a function of biking, you know, 18 miles a day um, and, you know, just the, my busy lifestyle because of my kids and such, um, I lost 60 pounds and, and change. And, um, you know, I just feel much better. The inflammation in two of parts of my body that I've had surgery on in the past because of sports related injuries, um, you know, just feel so much better now as a result of that, that weight loss and, you know, diet change, just paying attention to my food and eating more whole, uh, organic foods, foods prepared at home, you know, seldom eating out partially because of the economic factor there and how unaffordable our lives are. But, you know, I just think it's, it's a really great point you make is like, how can we look at stress reduction and interacting with the healthcare system as it currently is, is uh, constituted is not stress reducing, right? So even in that fact alone, Never mind the fact that we are no longer, it's very rare to find health insurance where you just pay your premiums and then you maybe have a copay, right? I don't know about you, but for the first time in like, you know, since I've been in a union in the last couple of years, I've been getting bills after we interact with the system, whether that's our primary care physician or a quick trip to urgent care or to the hospital for something. We're getting follow-up bills. So I just got a bill. I went to this dentist. I've been going there for years. Uh, I have pretty good health insurance. Um, all of a sudden, I got a $150 bill for a cleaning <laughs> and a five-second exam, like like five seconds. Like, oh, yeah, everything looks good. Um, knock on wood, never had a cavity. And uh, an x-ray, $150. My insurance company paid like $60. Um, and uh, and I was like, what's the problem here? Like, I've been going here. And what, what changed? Well, what happened was the my, the main doctor wasn't in, and it was an assistant. So even though the practice was uh, in, in network and the main doctor was in network, this new guy was not in network. And guess, guess what? Who gets the bill? Me. I get the bill. Uh, it's insane. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm angry not only with my insurance company because these rules are so stupid, but uh, how about the, the dentist, uh, you know, uh, clinic, they could have been like, hey, you know, this, this is your doctor's not in network. Do you still want a five-second examination? No. How about just the cleaning? I'm going to get the hell out of here. I don't want a $150 bill. Get the hell out of here. It's just, it's just nuts. I'm fighting it right now, and I th- hopefully it will be resolved. But this is problems they don't have anywhere else in the world. It's insane. We don't have a healthcare system. We have a national scandal. Don't get me riled up. No, and I think it's important that we tie it to the discussion that you know we set out to have today about unions. What did we we, we had a discussion plan? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. unions. Oh, okay, let's go with it. No, I think just discussion plan includes two texts at various points in the week leading up to this about kind of what hit my head and what hit your head and how we can make that happen. But yeah, so I'm on the contract action team for my teaching union. Um, and I, as part of that, I also joined up as the unit a, you know, the group of teachers, uh, rep for our, uh, district and going, you know, and talking about healthcare and whether or not we can explore other options, but we have too high of a risk pool, apparently at the current time to, to be in a good. What we should be doing is spreading out risk throughout the entire population, you know, right. Older, right. So one of the, the only thing that we have is like a socialized medical 
um, program, Medicare, essentially, for the most expensive members of our population. It's so insane. Uh, you know, we're paying insane amount of money to keep the most expensive uh, population, percentage of our population, the older, you know, adults and whatnot. They're the ones that get sick. They're the ones that need procedures. They're the ones that have falls and have hospital visits and that sort of thing. If we spread out the risk throughout the entire population, it would be so much cheaper for all of us. And the worst thing about like private insurances is like the dirty little secret. I saw a good video that John Stewart did. Uh, I don't think he's a, a radical leftist by any means, but he's at least an ally on uh, ally on our side. But you know, we have taxpayer dollars um, go to the government, and then the government pays billions to these health insurance companies to provide us whatever <laughs> profit-seeking uh, middlemen services that has nothing to do with health. And then we pay them more money for our premiums. And then we also have a copay, especially when we go see specialists. So it's just like a dirty river of money laundering and just a, just a, a real scheme, you know, a real scandal that's going on. Uh, and again, we're tons of our tax money, of course, goes to Medicare funding the most expensive people. But if we would, uh, just, you know, kind of spread that money around, I'm an anti-capitalist. So all this money stuff doesn't really, you know, even appeal to me that much, but I mean, just economically looking at it within the, how the system is structured, if you spread out the risk, you know, throughout the entire population, you know, and then uh, we, it would be a lot cheaper, I think, for all of us. And the one thing, the way insurance works is it's a flat tax. It's not progressive. Like, the, the, you know, in the Western democracies, quote-unquote democracies, you know, the United States and stuff, we have progressive tax systems. So the rich pay more, at least in theory. That's actually not how it works here anymore uh, during the golden era of capitalism for about 20, 25 years when there's no crashes or booms. It's just kind of an egalitarian, um, you know, after World War II up until, uh, I think, Nixon got us off the gold standard was, you know, egalitarian growth, the golden era of capitalism, you know, progressive taxes uh, for the rich where they pay more, you know, and the poor, you know, pay little or nothing, you know, depending on how much you make. Uh, but the way insurance works is it's flat tax. So we all pay the same, you know, whether our age and whether we're high risk or whether we're old or young or low risk, doesn't matter. It's flat tax. Uh, and it's not, it's not fair because, for example, the CEO is going to pay the same amount for the janitor, even though you know the salaries are way different. And the other thing is, the CEO has probably got good accountants and lawyers; they can kind of move money around, and so they're burdened probably out of pocket even less than the janitor that cleans the floors. And obviously, it's going to be a much greater burden or a higher percentage of the salary of the janitor. If we had a progressive tax and we spread risk throughout the entire population and actually got rid of, um, you know, had a universal payer or even had like a national system like the NHS in Britain where we have government. Um, operated healthcare systems, kind of like the VA does, you know, for veterans here in America. But we, would ha we could have that everywhere. And maybe you get a choice, maybe you don't. I mean, I'm, I'm for improving public access to healthcare. I don't necessarily think that rich should have better access to healthcare. I think we should work to improve the standards for everyone. So I think, like, you know, in Britain, if I was a citizen there, I would be all about expanding NHS, not defunding it, which is what they're trying to do. Of course, the British model, you know, they want to, I guess, some sort of privatized system like the U.S., but uh, that's only the ruling class. Of course, the majority of the population want a universal payer or a universal health care system. Actually, the majority of Americans want a universal health care system, too. One problem with Obamacare uh, and the reason that 
many Americans didn't support it is because they didn't think it went far enough. All it was was a watered-down version of basically a corporate giveaway. And essentially the entire healthcare system uh, is structured as a giveaway to private insurance companies and big pharma. And I'm totally against – I have a lawyer friend. We kind of go back and forth on politics. We see things a little bit differently. But I'm completely against patent rights. Um, for right. open sourcing, when you give patent rights to big pharmaceutical companies, first off, research and development is paid for by the taxpayers, often at public institutions and, you know, uh, NIH and, you know, those types of institutions. Yeah. Uh, but then they, they get sold off or bought or, you know, just given away to big pharma. And then when you give in big pharma uh, these patent rights, you're essentially offering them very generous state protections and providing them with monopolistic pricing rights so they can gouge us or, you know, uh, form strategic alliances with other pharmaceutical companies to ensure you know oligopoly and control over the healthcare system. So what you get is a handful of healthcare companies uh, or big pharmaceutical companies, you know, essentially owning in the rights to all the drugs that we need, you know, to save our lives or to maintain a certain lifestyle. Uh, and it's just a, it's just a national scandal. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't matter where you go. In terms of our, in our in our healthcare system, if you want to go to the clinic level, if you want to go to the insurance providers, if you want to go to Medicare being the only thing that works, and yet the right ones to kind of continue to dismantle it. Actually, not even the right. Biden as well, I think, is trying to been cut. He's been trying to cut Medicare's whole career. But anyways, we kind of went off in the weeds here. But I did want to mention the again how you know the flat tax works, and again monopolistic pricing rights to big pharma. It's absurd, especially because we as taxpayers pay for the rights of or pay for the research and development. Just look at COVID. The global pandemic actually just bought the shock doctrine. Uh, I guess that's like disaster capitalism. So I'm looking forward to reading that. But I think it came out before COVID. But that was a complete, uh, you know, disaster capitalist, uh, you know, price gouging moment or, you know, for big pharma where they, you know, took the took the pandemic and made, made billions for investors and shareholders and, you know, maybe millions for the CEOs and executives. So just a, just a disaster of a system. Again, the United States does not have a healthcare system. It has a scandal. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not incentivizing uh, anyone to, to prioritize the health of, of patients. Uh, that's absolutely true. And if we had a society where we were, you know, putting collective wellness first and kind of the health of the society as a whole, and you can look at it as the health of your working population as well. That would be something, like you said, that's that's free at the point of service, um, uh, something akin to a, a national health model, of course, would be uh, superior. Um, but, you know, it, it, it again, it often always for me goes back to the issue of unions, right? And what is our lever? What is our best leverage as workers for pushing back and trying to get concessions? Um, and even though it feels like we're very stuck sometimes in the process, I, you know, especially like I was mentioning with my contract action team and the look at our healthcare and whether like kind of basically our hands are tied this, this round of negotiating because of our high risk as a pool, which is, you know, again, ridiculous, but this is our only avenue as workers to stand up collectively and say, you know, this is not okay. We're going to need more, uh, more of, a, you know, just in our case, district contribution towards our healthcare, or in the case of workers who work uh, for companies or, you know, the corporation needs to make more of a contribution, um, you know, but these are band-aid fixes, right? The, the, the problem is that like within our system, as you mentioned, you know, Obamacare, the, the fix from the 
quote unquote political left in the U.S., you know, the the Democrats, um, you know, we ended up with a corporatized system that basically ensures that each uh, consumer will have to buy it or pay a penalty for not buying it. And it's a it's a program that was pioneered in, in Massachusetts. And, yeah, it does get more people in. Right. Is that Especially, Romney? Was that Romney yeah, pioneered? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a Heritage Foundation uh, idea first. So it came from a right-wing think tank. Um, and, you know, I I worked on Obama's campaign, you know, uh, in 2007, before the 2008 campaign, I worked on the primary. Um, and I, it, the thing that drew me to his campaign was his quote where he said, you know, making people who can't afford health care uh, buy health care is like forcing the homeless to buy a house, right? It's like, it doesn't make any sense. And he called that out in his- And then he went and went ahead and did it anyways. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, he well, he he had to, I I think at the time, you know, and not making excuses for him. There we go, here's the excuses, let's hear him. No, I don't want to make excuses for him, but the fact that companies were allowed, corporations and pharmaceutical, you know, lobbyists and uh, healthcare lobbyists were at the table, uh, negotiating this agreement just guarantees that you're going to have a corporate friendly agreement, right? It's just not going going to get the people's agreement. Nothing that was actually driving the energy, you know, the the unprecedented. So here's youth, something challenging. Youth turnout yeah. doesn't have political support. The universal healthcare system doesn't have political support. You know what that means? I mean, it's big corporations don't support it. The people with money right. don't support it, even right. though the majority of the population support it. I heard that a bunch during the Obama campaign. Does not have the political support. Uh, has anyone looked at any polls? Of course they have. They have people people in media, that's all they do is look at polls. So they, they completely exclude the general population who wants some form of a single-payer universal health care model and don't think that uh, you know Obamacare went far enough. So they make up these little phrases like doesn't have the political support, meaning the moneyed corporate interests in the United States do not favor it. I wonder why, you know, because we've got health insurance CEOs making tens of millions of dollars every year, and they certainly want to maintain their spot at the public trough, getting all those billion-dollar subsidies from the nanny state. Oh, you know, absolutely. It's uh, it's sickening in that regard, but it's also, you know, you, you look at the way that our, our system, you know, was created, but you also look at, at like you say, the, the inclusion of those lobbyists in the process, right? And we've talked about this before. It's legalized corruption. essentially write the bills. I mean, these are the right. people that essentially right. write the bills. I, no, I right. heard Obamacare was essentially written by the healthcare lobby, right? The healthcare, health insurance lobby. That's what I heard. I don't know. Maybe I'm an insider now. I'm getting, I'm getting inside information here. No, it's, that's not inside information. That is, you know, factually correct that the healthcare lobby, you know, had a whole bunch of language that, you know, they agreed upon and, and wrote. And in a lot of cases in our system, um, you know, the laws are written like, wholesale like pre-existing by... conditions. I mean, that's just completely uh, pre-existing conditions driving up healthcare costs for people that you know maybe because of. Uh, not, you know, not hitting the genetic lottery, you know, and, and yet they're forced to pay more, you know, because they make up these things like, again, pre-existing conditions, and I'm, I'm sure we can go on, or essentially, you know, excluding uh, skin, eyes, and teeth from healthcare. As far as I'm aware, I think that's part of my body, you know? No, it's it's absolutely true, and it's, it's really frustrating. 
that our system is is designed like that. Um, and I think another thing you brought up, I think that's important and going back to Chomsky or just the concept of, you know, this doesn't have political support. It doesn't have lobbyist support. There isn't, you know, have to wait behind it. The other piece of that is like that polling, it matters how you word your questions, right? So if you ask about in general, are you opposed to socialism? I mean, that answer is changing and becoming much more favorable in the responses, especially as you go below the age of 35 in those polls. But if you just remove kind of some of the, the buzzwords and you ask about, you know, do you want a healthcare system that's paid for by your taxes and is free at the point of care? Yes, of course. Why, why who would not want that, right? Um, and it, the only other, you know, factor that has made it so hard to generate, you know, real groundswells of support for it is the the red scare, right? The stuff we've talked about in the past, and I talked about a lot on my podcast. Just the the constant effort to demonize any country that moves left of left of neoliberal left of neoliberal. Lib- liberalism, my bad, um, you know, especially after Reagan, but even any time in that period after World War uh, II, any country that even showed some, you know, desire to get cozy with socialism or get cozy with the Soviet Union, um, you know, we, we just spent so much energy in our, uh, in our media, in our advertising all across the board uh, to demonize those concepts, right, so that we could keep our system as such and and not even look at like I think that the other issue here is that Americans don't even get right how easy it can be like my wife went to college all four years at St. Andrews in Scotland when she was there she she, if she needed to go to the doctor she just went to the doctor she didn't get a bill (laughs) it's just like that's just they were you're you're here you know you're a resident and not even you can be a visitor. You can be a tourist. If you need help, you just go get help and it's not going to cost you. And that's just like, it could be so much easier. Way easier. I've spent a lot of time working and volunteering and just, you know, clinical rotations, all that kind of stuff in American hospitals. Uh, I've never been actually uh, in a hospital outside the United States, but having done some research, uh, I know in, in, in America, the billing department takes up a whole floor. I mean, computers, departments of people, accountants, finance people. It's insane. Uh, and from talking to other people, you know, there's some of these clinics, especially like in Europe, they don't even have a billing department. Or maybe there's a little room in the basement where, you know, they keep the old spreadsheets and stuff like that. But if you go to an American hospital, often the billing department, the accounting department, you know, the people who work with insurance claims, it's a whole floor. That could be doctors, nurses. Beds, uh, offering procedures, I mean, all sorts of things. But uh, unfortunately, in the American healthcare system, you know, that's taken up with, uh, you know, business people, accountants, spreadsheets, computers, all to just track payments and, you know, money flow. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. And like you say, I mean, there's so many people who stand to lose their jobs if we were to go to a single payer system. But, that's only because we have so much waste within the system, right? You look at what we pay per capita, it's just far outstrips any comparable nation in the world. And our outcomes, again, are, are 
horrific. And the administration, um, the administrative costs for Medicare are a fraction of what they are for health insurance companies. People always talk about the government being, you know, some big giant bureaucratic agency, which it is, you know, it's not, it's not a good thing. I'm not for bureaucracy at all. In fact, I think the, the reason we have bureaucrats uh, are to make people's lives more difficult. So I'm not in favor of big giant government. I'm an anarcho syndicalist. So anarchy is kind of my main philosophy. Uh, but you know, in terms of what I would rather have, I would rather have a, a you know, a public, uh, um, you know, operated system, you know, a universal payer, universal healthcare system, get rid of the middleman. Uh, and again, the administrative costs are a fraction of what they are for these big giant insurance companies, these big bureaucracies of hierarchies and CEOs and board of directors and middle managers and lower middle managers and, you know, insurance processors, adjusters. I mean, just all sorts of jobs that we just do not need. It has nothing to do with healthcare. These jobs do nothing to improve healthcare outcomes. In fact, they probably hinder them. Absolutely. Like we said, you know, the more you interact with the system, the more you try to get things covered, you know, the system is designed to have you drop, you know, drop off. Either they drop the call on you or you just don't have the time to follow up, um, you know, and it's it's the stress we're talking about. But, you know, the other piece of it is it's like there's so much within our system that uh, is is very successful at driving desperation, right? Whether that's desperation for lack of time, desperation because of high levels of stress, um, desperation because you've got some right, you know, overriding debt, you're running at a loss, right? You can't, you can't keep up with the bills. You can't keep up with inflation as it's hit, but you just can't keep up with life. You know, that, that keeps us from, from working out solutions. It keeps us from meeting our neighbors and talking to our neighbors. It keeps us from leisure time, time to read, time to think. Um, it keeps us from those things that, that would, you know, drive us to work together uh, to design a system that would serve all of us, you know, and, and would meet needs as opposed to just kind of being bloat or, or in the case of our federal tax dollars going towards funding wars that are overwhelmingly unpopular and that lead to, you know, as we've talked about on the show and as you covered quite well over the last month and a half, you know, genocide, right. And, and, uh, just mass death. We're, you know, we export death because of our taxes. And what if we, you know, actually listened to what people wanted and we went for, you know, programs that could build health, you know, build, uh, you know, community. Communities. And oh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's where I was thinking too. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like anarcho-syndicalism, as, as you ascribe to, and is something that I think could be integral in, you know, saving us from climate change, actually, uh, you know, relies on a central community, like, you know, the workplace in your case, but it, it could really be any small groupings, right? As long as we, you know, as long as people just get to know each other. Like it can also just... work in a highly technologically advanced society. In fact, I think it's the only way it could work in a highly technologically advanced society. I do not think that hierarchy and corporations and bureaucracy are the answers. So I want to dismantle these unjust hierarchies. Let's get rid of them and replace them with co-ops, worker-owned, worker-controlled. All right, what's next? You had some talking points. Uh, what do we get into next? State of the teaching industry, state of teachers, state of uh, an educator. What's going on in the school systems? Let's get the report. 
Well, I, I just do want to make a quick plug for worker co-ops because I love uh, talking about it. I talked about it a lot on uh, the, my podcast, uh, Trickle Down Socialism. And it, I just Googled it because I had I had to know. I remember uh, when I was working on the pod, you know, about a year and a half ago, last time I checked, it was like 550 worker-owned co-ops. Uh, so that's worker-owned and, and worker-run with a democratic uh, workplace environment. Uh, it was like 550 in the U.S. and now we're up to 612. So it's a growing movement, and it is a, a quiet way to uh, to really get a lot more, get closer to economic justice uh, in the U.S. But you, you know, justice—that's a great word. That's um, reading some of the greats: Socrates, Plato, more so Aristotle. He's my favorite of the ancient Greeks. But uh, Plato, I think he kind of got us all started. Uh, I think he's kind of an authoritarian in terms of his philosophy. So I don't mess with his political philosophies too much and more of an Aristotle kind of guy because he was in favor of democracy. However, Plato in the Republic talking about justice, I still think about that book. Very, very enlightening. You know, what what does justice strip down? I think Socrates said something like, it's a lot easier to kind of to describe what injustice is than to exactly describe justice. You know, so I, I, I know injustice when I see it, but exactly what is cosmic justice uh, it's still a very philosophical, interesting idea to me that I try to uh, I try to philosophize about every day. Justice, I'm all about it. But what is it exactly? I know it when I see it. You know. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you, and you asked for a, you know an education update, and you know it's a great segue when you mention uh, reading the, the Greeks. Uh, Let's go back here real quick. I did write this. I did write this down. Uh, the number one medical, I'm sorry, medical emergency is the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. I always like to mention that. Um, so, you know, we have this model where supposedly we want the, you know, we want these health insurance companies and we want to keep our doctor and we want the state out of our, out of our healthcare. But, uh, yeah, what about that stat right there? I mean, medical bankruptcy is not a phenomenon known in any other country in the world, at least I'm aware of it, certainly not on the scale like it is in the United States, but, uh, Anyway, sorry, I, I wanted to interject that. I did write that down. That's the last thing about the healthcare I wanted to get to. Let's let's get to it. State of the education. You're a union rep, right? What's been going on in the school systems? So I'm actually, you know, what's interesting is like a, a shop steward in a normal union. Um, we have building reps, and I'm not a building rep in my current building. What I am doing though is uh, kind of representing our school. Um, in in the within the district at on a union basis um, on the contract action team. So we're in a bargaining year. Uh, we're up for a new contract, and you know we're just looking to make sure we get as organized as possible, um, so that we can get word from each of the schools and each of the teachers, and really get feedback from them first, so that we go into bargaining with. You know, word from our our teachers is like, what do you need? What do you want? What what are you you know what are the troubles you're facing? And, uh, you know, what should be our main push as we move into negotiations? And, you know, as teachers, we're in a good place right now. And I feel, um, despite the the vitriol from the right on stuff that's like not even based in reality in terms of like, you know, all kinds of crazy accusations that we're facing. But, you know, I want to stay focused on the idea that like teachers, we have momentum. I think parents faced uh, some of the realities of teachers and some saw some of our challenges firsthand when they stayed home with their kids and tried to facilitate online learning. Um, and that was with another educator driving the process, right? 
it still was felt as so difficult that I think, you know, there's a, a bit of, uh, I think, attitudes about teachers and the efforts of teachers unions are are far better understood now, I think, by, by the working class and, you know, by people across the country, right? You, we saw Portland, Oregon teachers go on strike for three weeks. That's a pretty drastic action. It's against the law in Massachusetts for teachers because of the nature of our agreements with districts. Which is insane. On. We should never be able, right. we should never be bargaining away our ability to strike. That's the only leverage we have. And I'm so against that. But of course, the ruling class no, so, always fit it in these kind of contracts and take away any leverage we have and take it from us. Well, what's interesting, though, is that we do, in fact, strike um, when it comes to it, right? And so what ends up happening is we just, you know, the district uh, files, uh, you know, some legal action against the teachers union for illegal strike. It's just a wildcat strike, right? So uh, it's just not often endorsed uh, explicitly by the union president, and it's done more at the membership level. Um, But, you know, it happens, and then part of the agreement after the fact ends up being, you know, we'll drop our charges against you, you drop our charges against us so that we can get this agreement signed by membership, right? And it's just, um, it's just another barrier, right? You say, I, I totally agree with you. It should never be made legal to prevent folks from from going on strike, especially when it's decided collectively. Did you uh, see that they wanted to, in the courts, they wanted to pass some stuff? I, I mean, I, I haven't followed it too much, but I, I saw it uh, that they wanted to, basically fine or I guess you can be liable. You can be sued. So workers can be sued if they have to close down, let's say a factory or a plant, they can sue them for every day that the factory had to be closed down. And if you're talking about like big auto um, factories and big auto companies, you know, it could be millions of dollars a day. You know, you're expecting these union workers to pay back. So that would obviously saddle them and completely, um, you know, if, if, it, if, the, if this type of precedent was set, it would pretty much end, you know, workers' ability to strike because, you know, I'm sure that they would do all this stuff like they did with student loans. And, you know, you can't uh, you can't go bankrupt. You know, that's one of the most – I tweeted this earlier in the week. It's one of the most cruel, savage techniques of class warfare to date is uh, to strip um, student debtors of bankruptcy protection so that it follows them for life. But that kind of stuff, you know, financial implications for going on strike. I mean, they want to make it illegal. They want to fine workers, uh, you know, make them liable, be be able to sue them. You know, if they're if a, if a, if a, if a, a union gets tens of millions of dollars in fines and legal bills, they can't make that up. You know, they're not CEOs or board of directors making big salaries. These are people just scraping by, you know? Yeah, I mean, and that's the beauty of the power of a union, right? So even in states and places where those types of fines are legal, then those types of fines are levied. They are often negotiated out as part of the bargaining process, right? And so that's the strength of the union. And, you know, Janus, the Janus decision from the Supreme Court is another big court decision that, uh, you know, was was feared to be a setup to, to further weaker, weaken unions, you know, as they've been, you know, progressively weakened since the Reagan era. Um, but, you know, in, in my experience, and this might be because we are in such a, you know, quote unquote, blue, more liberal leaning state, you know, we only have like three holdouts out of 65 um you know, who have you know opted out of joining the union at our school, um, you know, so there are these ways that, that the right wing, especially, but 
you know, Democrats also, you know, you see Biden, you know, cutting off the railroad workers at the knees when they were right at the very opportune time for them to strike and, and really win the concessions that they needed. You know, we still see the union uh, rising, right? It's it, the union membership is rising. Union. I saw uh, last stat, it's going down. I actually saw from 2021 to 2022, it went down like 0.2 percent. I was actually, I found this article the other day. I, I don't know what it is from 2022 to 2023, but it went down like 0.2%, a tiny fraction. I actually was expecting it to go the other way. And then the same article, I believe that private sector workers uh, are now down to like less than 7% unionized. The majority of uh, unionized workers in America, in America are federal workers. It's still a very strong union. But even the right is trying to attack that. So, right. but no, yeah, it, I, think, I think 2023, I'm hoping to see that number come up a little bit. We'll, we'll hope for the best. Uh, no, and I, we're hitting on the hitting on this uh, labor labor summer that we had, you know, a lot of, a lot of unionizing, a lot of, a lot of striking, a lot of all kinds of good stuff, I think happening for labor. So I'm hoping, so I think here's the other thing too, at the same time, an overwhelming majority of Americans support unions. And that number actually was definitely growing up over the last uh, couple of years, uh, support for unions. So that's a great thing. I'm hoping to see membership rise as well. I, I, I would have to see the article because that's not the data that I've seen. And also that might be specifically looking at membership within a union. And so then you're looking at percentage dropping because of things like the Janus decision and the opt out clause, right? The, the idea that it's now legal to opt out of public se sector employee unions, and that's following for private em employee unions as well. But I think you make a, another, you know, a good point in terms of uh, public attitude. Um, and the 7% number of union unions within our economy is a really key number as well. Uh, on my podcast, I had uh, Kurt Anderson, uh, you know, a long time. He did a number of things in media, uh, was an editor at, you know, top magazines and stuff. And he kind of did a retrospective looking back at the economy and being like, you know, I was kind of just going along and now I'm looking and it's just this diabolical plot. It's called evil geniuses, uh, you know, about the, the Reagan era and how a number of players there set the stage for the weakening of the new deal. But a big part of that is, is weakening union membership and, and, you know, making it more difficult for unions to operate. But the, the key number seems to be in a society about 30%, right? And that was the, the union membership we saw uh, in the lead up to the New Deal. After the New Deal, when union mem uh, union protections were put in place, and it was made, you know, much harder for an antagonization of unions, especially violent antagonization of unions uh, by the New Deal, we saw those numbers get up upwards over 30%. And that's when you start to see like actual, you know, you mentioned the, the golden era of capitalism. Well, you know, it, it seemed like capitalism was working. I know you use that term facetiously, but, you know, and it was a more economically just, especially for white folks in the U.S. Um, Black people do though, actually, they actually got jobs after the war. So like in Detroit, you know, big auto, that sort of thing. I have the statistic here. Um, actually the article was from the USA today. So we're talking mainstream media, uh, us labor member movement is more popular than ever, but union membership is dwindling. Nearly a quarter of the workforce belonged to a union 40 years ago. Now that number is just over 10%, uh, in 2022, 
Uh, the union membership dropped to its lowest of all time. So I'm looking at the article right now, 10.1% in 2022. So we'll see what happens from 2022 to 2023. But uh, apparently 10.1% is the lowest it's ever been in U.S. history. Right. So, there, yeah, there are a number of factors there. And looking at the last 40 years, uh, you know, such a staggering way that unions have been weakened. And a lot of that public opinion you mentioned is was a huge factor, right? So, NAFTA, you know, North American Free Trade uh, Alliance was set up to kind of facilitate trade, but to facilitate outsourcing of manufacturing jobs from the U.S. to countries like Mexico. Um, and a huge result of that was uh, this like easy scapegoat for politicians to say, oh, it was the unions, you know, they were standing up, they went too far. The unions just, they just went too far. Um, and they pushed those jobs out when, you know, we know, and we've talked about this is a conscious decision by companies, you know, to maximize profit at the cost of their labor force and at the cost of the society that helped build them to what they are. Right. But that it, it's just, you know, it comes, it, it comes back to the idea that it's just, it's a system that's that's driven by profit and there's really no incentive for, for making sure that everyone's needs are met. Um, and, you know, all the way back to the healthcare, right? It just doesn't, that doesn't jive with healthy outcomes, right? That doesn't ever jive with health of the planet or health of the worker or health of the kids, whatever, whatever measure you want to look at. It's, it's just not a recipe for that. So let's go to some Chomsky stuff. This is Chomsky wheelhouse stuff. My favorite political philosopher. Uh, he's going to, he had some stuff to say about NAFTA. Uh, let me get to, uh, you talked about health, health of the economy. That actually doesn't mean health of uh, Americans uh, or, and certainly not working Americans. When they talk about health of the economy, they essentially mean how's rich people doing? You know, essentially a, a strong economy means you want rich people happy and everyone else scared. So we'll quote St. Allen, uh, who built a, a, a an economy that uh, benefited the rich and powerful for decades and it completely collapsed in 2008. Uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, and uh, I guess he didn't see it coming, but uh, he essentially was one of the architects of the financial crisis. Um, of course, the bankers were bailed out, the people who crashed the economy, people of his ilk, uh, and those were the same people chosen by Obama. Essentially, his whole cabinet was Wall Street uh, ex executives and whatnot to uh, rebuild the economy. So not only were they not punished, not only did they not go to jail for crashing the economy, they were rewarded and they rebuilt the economy, uh, and essentially the banks were uh, or bigger than stronger than ever after the after that. But uh, what St. Allen says, this is Alan Greenspan. One of the one of the um, one of the strengths of the economy is worker insecurity. What does that mean? Uh, real worker insecurity means that when you go to bed at night, you know you don't you don't know if you're going to have a job in the morning. So that's actually good for the economy. When people are scared, they don't ask for raises, they don't ask for better benefits. If they don't know if their job's going to be transferred uh, to Mexico or overseas, you know that's again a good thing, at least for rich people, at least for the people that own the economy. And there doesn't even have to be an actual transfer of jobs, even if they put a sign out in the plant or the factory saying, you know, uh, union organization will cause job transfer. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a threat of job transfer sometimes is enough, you know, uh, Mexican jobs, you know, you, you, they put up signs around the plants or that, that sort of thing to scare away, you know, your union organizing. Cause they're like, Hey, you know, if we, 
we organize, we're probably going to lose our jobs, you know, and of course it's a, it's a power move, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it's propaganda. Let's go to NAFTA here, which is essentially is an investor's rights agreement. Um, and this investor rights agreement essentially puts, this is a globalized capitalist kind of system. What it does, it has nothing to do with, um, you know, free trade. Uh, it's essentially an investor's rights agreement to provide protections so American businesses get the rights of Mexican citizens and vice versa. Uh, and essentially what it does is, Put workers, it destroyed the Mexican economy, it destroyed the Canadian economy, and U.S. workers are doing maybe as bad as they've done in years. I actually saw a, tweeted out an article, uh, I think the average American needs $12,000 more per year just to maintain their previous living standards. So we're in a cost of living crisis. I think, what, 60% uh, of households uh, live paycheck to paycheck, or maybe it's even higher than that, or maybe it's 60% can't even afford a uh, $400 bill. So just things are not good, not only in Mexico, and that's why we have this migration crisis because the Mexican economy was destroyed by NAFTA. But again, it's very, it's very cruel. It's a very twisted system, neoliberalism, what it does is essentially it puts um, workers of the global south in competition for uh, with workers of the industrialized countries, like, you know, the rich countries, like, um, you know, America, Canada, and Europe. So what it does is bring wages down for everyone. Uh, you know, it keeps wages down for people in Bangladesh and, you know, in Mexico and Latin America and that sort of thing. But it also uh, also keeps wages down for American workers because, you know, American workers, unless the wages are slashed, they're not going to be competitive on the global scene. And, of course, there's no benefit whatsoever to make, you know, Nike shoes or whatever, you know, in Thailand or Bangladesh or Indonesia or wherever they're made these days. There's there's no economic advantage. There's no material um, you know, competitive advantage. It's just cheap workforce. That's why they're made uh, in these you know countries of the global south. Um, and also, what these companies do, they you know, when when workers organize or threaten strike, prior to that movement, they prepare for it. So, what these corporations do, like Caterpillar has done, is they create excess capacity abroad. Uh, what that means is essentially, you know, when American plants and factories go on strike, they can just transfer their already, um, you know, they can essentially just increase capacity abroad so that they don't miss a beat. So they can just kind of, you know, increase production in a different country. And, uh, you know, and, and essentially, you know, these corporations can not miss a beat, cannot, they don't, they don't lose any revenue or anything like that. So workers might be out of job days weeks, months, or longer, but obviously if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you can't afford to strike. So, uh, But what corporations do when they set up excess capacity, you know, within a couple weeks, they can kind of get right back up to where they were prior to the strike. So it's a, a very sick, twisted, you know, savage class warfare technique that uh, this neoliberal economy has allowed these corporations to get away with, with, again, deals like NAFTA, these investor rights agreements. Right, and it's why you see gains in unions right now at, for teachers' unions, right? Big wins, Portland, Oregon is just a, the latest example. There have been a number of them here in Massachusetts um, and wildcat strikes across the country that have also been successful. But it's the other industries that are, you know, you can't outsource them, or at least right now they can't, right? So you've got the delivery jobs, right? You got the Teamsters winning a, a raise that's essentially a thirty-two percent raise over the, the life of the contract. And, is that for and, UPS? Is that what you're talking about there? 
Yeah, for UPS yep. and, and and striking down the two tier system, which is designed to divide workers, um, you know. But you also your retail, uh, your service sector unions, like your, um, your baristas across the country, you know. And we see not only in in uh, Buffalo, New York, did did those Starbucks successfully form, you know, workers unions despite the efforts of Starbucks to fight fight back and to fire all kinds of dirty tricks and like captive audience meetings where they're, you know, I had a worker from Starbucks on who had, had successfully fought a union drive on my podcast. Um, and, you know, he laid out all the tactics that the company had been using and it's just, it's dirty stuff, but we're seeing the unions in places where, you know, workers are, are interacting with the public frequently, right? Teachers, uh, service sector, delivery drivers, um, and also jobs that that couldn't you know historically have been outsourced, but the huge win is that UAW win, right? Because oh, yeah. that's that's one that was was militant, right? Had really gone to bat for their workers, and worker membership had shown up, and the community had shown out in the seventies, in the sixties in Detroit. If the workers went on strike, the community went right to work cooking food for families. Um, you That's know, awesome. yeah. putting together a strike fund for families, you know, that kind of thing. But those, those are the people who were demonized hardest after those wins, right? Um, for this quote, this like supposed forcing out of, of manufacturing jobs from the U.S. When in reality, as you mentioned, it's the extractivist ideas of neoliberalism. Wow. How am I having really doing with well with that word tonight, aren't you? I don't, it's weird because that usually, you know, I've gotten to the point where I'm pretty comfortable with that word um, coming off, you know, coming out of my mouth. But it's, it's just uh, like you said, what, like we we're talking about, and we're starting to kind of delve into this in the podcast that is still in the early stages uh, with me and C Money, um, who you've had on the show, who, you, as you said, is a wild cat. Um, you know, he's, he's a funny guy. He reads very extensively. Um, and it's, it's just, uh, I, I totally lost my train of thought there, to be honest with you. What but are we no, cover we're, tonight? We're, di- we're diving yeah. into it. Extract. What are we going to cover tonight on the podcast? So we're about uh, an hour in. What do you think, what should the show be about? I just wanted to make sure I tied this up. So the extractivism piece is something that we're diving into. So when we are ready to release uh, this show, um, it, it will dive into that concept of, of the U.S., you know, being able to extract resources and, and labor capital from uh, the global South mainly. And, and that's a, a really good point that we need to make sure we, we cover there. But as we said, you know, we wanted to be talking about unions and we wanted to kind of be tying that together with, with healthcare. And, you know, the only way I see it at this stage, aside from, you know, a mass movement of like a mass strike to demand better healthcare for all um, yeah, is, instead of just members, is, right? The, that's right. what the union, I think, is the shortcomings here in America. Unions, instead of pushing for Medicare for all and better health care for all citizens, they usually just focus on members, which, you know, I understand that ploy or that tactic. But uh, I think, you know, to get even more union support here in the United States, I think if they start pushing for, you know, socialized measures that benefit everyone, uh, I think that that can really have, you know, a ripple effect. And I think that they can really gain some momentum and gain support more than, more so than they've done already. Well, and that's what happens when you get to a, a level of like 30% of society, of, of workers within a society being in a union. 
um, that's where you get outward pressure on other jobs uh, so that even if that job's not within the union, they're seeing, you know, competitive uh, health care or competitive pay. Um, it, it's when you get to a point where it's like hard to find a job that doesn't have a union option that you could find. Um, that's when you see those gains spread throughout society. But, you know, that's just that's still within the capitalist system. And as you've mentioned before, and as I, I tend to agree with, those systems designed for profit are not ever going to end well for us, for workers. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for unions, but essentially that's just asking, you know, for more benign, uh, you know, benign system of capitalism. You know, essentially it's like asking the king to be a little bit more benevolent, to be less harsh. Instead of, uh, you know, joining unions and begging CEOs and uh, executives and whatnot to be nicer to us and to pay us better, what I'd really like to do is sit down strikes, general strikes, and eventually in the long run, Workers taking over the means of production. That's the long. That's the long goal. Unions are just a step in that process. Uh, and then corporations. I wanted to make this point too. Uh, they would much rather make and spend billions and billions of dollars on union bus- busting tactics and anti-union propaganda instead of just using that money to pay their workers because it's a tactic of class warfare. They knew if they they know if they spend you know millions if not billions of dollars some of these corporations combined you know to uh, essentially break up the unions and to prevent organization they knew in the long run that's going to be great for business and, and great for the bottom line. Uh, the other thing here too, gig work, speaking of St. Allen and worker insecurity, gig work is a growing, um, portion of the economy, the U S economy. They always talk about jobs numbers, which are completely irrelevant talking about jobs without talking about wages and how they haven't kept up with inflation for decades is completely meaningless. So these, you know, propagandists in the white house and in Congress talk about jobs, 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 depending on, you know, if the red team's in power, if the blue team's in power and we're supposed to clap and celebrate, Oh, great jobs numbers. Like who, first off, who cares? Most of these new jobs are gig work. People, you know, essentially have to work two, three jobs just for subsistence, just to get by, especially like, you know, Uber and, um, uh, Uber Eats and whatever those you know these delivery services, the wear and tear on your car, you're not getting anything if if you know maybe tiny fraction towards gas, but you're not getting the wear and tear on your car, you're not getting insurance, you're not getting paid time off, you're not getting retirement. So most of these uh, jobs numbers are just service workers, gig work, where people are, are working two, three jobs just to scrape by for a living, not getting any benefit, not getting any security, not knowing you know if they're going to be work tomorrow when they go to sleep. Um, you know, hoping for the best, but uh, again, no security, uh, no paycheck is not guaranteed for gig work and for a lot of people in the service industries. Um, yeah, militant. Yeah, I, I was writing this down. I'm trying to figure out what this word means exactly because I am. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a pacifist. I am in, in in favor of you know defensive uses of violence tactically. Um, but what does it mean to be militant? What does it mean to be and to have a militant labor movement. I've read that a lot, especially, you know, in some of the left-leaning uh, and left-wing, um, you know, worker polit- political uh, writings that, or readings that I've done. I want to define that. I want to tie it down. What does militant mean? What do, what do you think it means? A militant labor movement. Nonviolent? Is it nonviolent? We're just very organized. We're very – what does it mean exactly? I've, I've, yeah, I've thought no, about I, it I, a lot. Yeah, I mean er- – 
early, very early in uh, union organizing, right in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when there were groups like the Pinkertons actually hunting down and killing union members. I'm from members. Pittsburgh. That was the Homestead, the Homestead uh, Massacre. That's what the Pinkertons, they were the ones that showed up and started shooting there. Right, absolutely. Right. So at that point, the idea of militant being militant as a union was literal, right? The idea of, you know, taking up arms if necessary to protect one's union and one's family. Um, from, one's workplace, sure. Yeah, sure. But in, in you know, in modern usage and after after the New Deal, after World War II, we're looking at more of the use of that word, like you said, to be better organized, but to be ready to stand up. Right. To be ready to stand up and strike. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Just to be ready to push back in, on behalf of your workers and to show your workers, you know, entities like let the, the benefits that the union is gaining be seen um, and kind of showing that the, the work of, of organizing is done. So kind of at at parity, you know, with the importance of the job and the paycheck is that that union organizing and the union identity is central, right, to who you are and kind of what you believe. That's the idea of union militancy um, and, and the idea of, of always putting your union brother or sister first, um, you know, and making sure that, like, we have a collective mindset um, and the idea that when something is done to my union brother, that could also be done to me, right? And so we stand up, we stand united against that for whether that's a fair contract, whether that's someone sitting next to you during a disciplinary hearing to make sure that everything is above board and everything, you know, that your your union brother or sister is being spoken for. Um, all of that is is the idea of, of being uh, a, a united um, union and a, a militant union. Um, so it's not a literal sense anymore, in my opinion, uh, but it is the idea of being willing to stand back, you stand up against uh, that reaction, the pushback from from moneyed interests and from capital and from uh, corporate interests in particular. Speaking of the moneyed interests, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson said something along the lines of, when banking and moneyed institutions take over the country, we will have lost the revolution. So unfortunately, we lost the revolution a long time ago, sometime along the lines of when uh, corporations became people. I actually had a lawyer on not too long ago. We talked about that a little bit. We live in a corporatocracy. Uh, and tying healthcare to um, work essentially is a tactic of class warfare, ensuring that workers are much easier to exploit. If you have an existing health condition and you go out on strike and you're losing your health care, that could be, that could, that could be lead to death, you know. So that, that's one extra way that the corporate, you know, the corporate state nexus, uh, you know, ensures that uh, you're going to be obedient, loyal, subservient, and not strike or not ask for better benefits and higher Hey, and one thing they fear is the sit-down strike, which is one step away from saying we don't need bosses, we can do this ourselves. Those who work in the factories ought to own them, to quote the, uh, I think it's the um, 19th century factory girls. So, uh, you know, that, I think it's Lowell, Massachusetts, right? That's where the factory girls were. Essentially, when after the Industrial Revolution, um, they were essentially 
taking people, farmers, and, fact, and, and putting them in factories, taking away their dignity, forcing them to work for subsistence, driving people in the labor market. You said about, uh, on the text earlier today, you said something about um, how the system is designed to be, to be incredibly strenuous, to, to be a strain on us. And that's how the system is designed. It's essentially uh, the right wants to dismantle the wealth, to dismantle the welfare state, drive people into the workforce, and whatever you can get on the labor market, that's your worth, that's your value. So there's not going to be any welfare, there's not going to be any unemployment assistance, there's not going to be any um, social security or nothing, no Medicare, no Medicare for all, no insurance, no COBRA, whatever, you know, whatever you can get on the labor market, that's your value, and if you're not working, then it's, you're, you might be in the gutter somewhere, you might be in a shanty town, you might be in a tent community, that's what they want to do, again, to drive us into the workforce and then at the same time on the other side of their mouth we have to have some level of unemployment you know some sort of dogma eight to ten twelve percent whatever it is nine percent uh we can't have zero unemployment that would be a bad thing because then all of a sudden workers would have power and leverage and demand and better wages and that sort of thing so they want to drive us into the workforce dismantle the welfare state whatever you can get on the workforce is you know what you can what your value is, you know, to society. Of course, we live in a meritocracy, uh, you know, where health insurance executives get millions of dollars a year, but you get zero dollars a year to raise children. So that's the meritocracy we live in. Uh, but and again, on the other side of their mouth, um, you know, they want to uh, essentially have unemployment. It's a good thing, you know, for the economy. Uh, worker insecurity. So, you know, if you actually take a look at what these people are saying. It's a cruel, dark, twisted, you know, system. Capitalism is completely uh, unable to meet even the most basic of human needs. It's a, it's, a, it's a system that we need to overthrow and we need to put something in its place much better. And I think there's so many alternatives out there. Just pick one. Any of them are going to be a little bit better. The problem I see is, you know, this Red Scare has been going on since the 1900s. I think Woodrow Wilson wasn't at the first Red Scare. Essentially, people are starting to confuse basic human rights with communism. So uh, that's a major problem. Uh, anytime we talk about uh, affordable health care, education, uh, social security, uh, you know, unemployment assistance, anything like that, you know, all of a sudden, hey, wait a minute, that sounds like a socialist or a communist idea. These are scare words. So it looks like we have about uh, five minutes to go. I've been just kind of wandering off on tangents. Go ahead. What do you want to get to? You, you uh, You've been you've been a great guest, and I love catching up with you. What's on your mind, Pat TDS? Five minutes. What do you want to talk about? I mean, you covered a lot right there, right? So it's uh, I do agree. It's always good to come on and and have our conversations. That's, that's the only reason I have you back. You, you say you agree with me, whether you do or not. That's how you keep getting asked to come back on. Here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, nothing. No agreement was was. No, uh, was deemed there. What I said was I enjoy the conversations and I do uh, exploring these issues, I think is really important. Um, and I do think, as I mentioned with the healthcare system, you know, we suffer from a lack of imagination, especially in the United States, but from anywhere within the capitalist realm and, and uh, you know, countries that, that want to keep that rate of kind of business control, uh, you know, going right we we just suffer from a lack of imagination um and we suffer you know from intentional uh you know driving us away from the ability to explore other options right and so you know i i think conversations like these are really important for that reason is that whoever it might be just kind of searching along in their podcast app 
you know, happens upon it and, and just has a, a chance to think about the alternative that's not presented in their media. Um, you know, I think that's the value of these conversations. And, you know, that's what I had hoped to do with my initial podcast. And that's kind of where we set out uh, when C-Money and I kind of like started to re-examine, like putting together a show. It's just like opening up the imagination uh, of anyone who tunes in to other possibilities. Um, and, you know, just the, the power of of working with other people, getting to know other people, um, and then, you know, trying to design systems based on based on need, right? As opposed to based on uh, some arbitrary system that involves intergenerational wealth and waking up on third base thinking that you hit a triple, all of the fun fun ways in which our, our society incentivizes uh, wealth. Here's, uh, here's, yeah. a, here's something I just tweeted. I just tweeted, well, I tweeted two things today. First off, Jeff Bezos, he's a... He's planning on buying $500 million of single-family homes up to drive up the price and to ensure, I guess, a lot of the population just rents their entire life. Uh, I actually tweeted this out earlier today. I think since 1980, uh, the average first-time home buyer age has almost doubled. So that's – or not maybe not doubled, but it's gone up from, from the low 20s in many states uh, to – I think in California, it was like 49, maybe 47 in New York. Uh, you know, New, New England, it's very, very expensive there, too. Uh, but speaking of which, um, in terms of start, ending up uh, or starting life on third base, this is an article, I think it was UBS. Billionaires amass more through inheritance than wealth creation, says UBS. A survey, a survey of global elites show that the great transfer between generations has overtaken entrepreneurship. Uh, not surprising to me whatsoever. No, it's, it's not surprising. Uh, you just look at the way things are structured and just the crushing reality of debt. Um, and it just makes sense. That and low we, tax rates, low tax rates, tax havens, uh, shell companies, all that kind of stuff, these wealth orders. Uh, you know, essentially where, where they hide their money. Of course, the Panama Papers, the Pandora Papers try to highlight uh, where these global elites are hiding their money and how they uh, are avoiding and uh, avoiding their burden of taxes. And any of the reporters that start to cover these stories, all of a sudden they wind up in a ditch with a couple gunshot wounds in the back of their head that's ruled a suicide. <laughs> oh, boy, what a system we live in. No, I mean, my uh, educator and comrade, one of my union buddies and also, you know, kind of a political left thinker as I, you know, as I am, was talking about 30 it. Seconds. Con- yeah. 30 seconds. Wrap it up. 30 seconds. Yeah, I was having, talking about having that, that conversation with kids about, like, what is the purpose of uh, journalists being killed? Why might this be happening in certain areas? And then talking about those areas. But anyway, man, it's always good to be on the show. Um, I look forward to our next time getting together in December. Uh, folks, I will be like two weeks. Hey, make sure those kids know that there's other alternatives out there to capitalism. I want you to tell them and teach them that there's other options. It doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, we have to be careful the way we do it. Otherwise, we get a lot of parents. You might wind up in a blacklist somewhere, blackballed or something, or in a ditch. You might wind up in a ditch somewhere. You never know. (laughs) All right, brother. brother. It's fun. See you later. See you, man. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Pat TDS, for a great discussion on politics, healthcare, and unions. Shout out to Drowning Dog and Malatesta for the music. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out. Those